Welcome back to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm thrilled to share this conversation with Deb Donig about the intersection between contemporary technology and culture and the lessons of history. Listen in as we dive into ethical technology, the Holocaust, and what it means to learn from the past as we think about the present and the future. Deb Donig is an assistant professor of English literature at Cal Poly. She's the co-founder of the Cal Poly Ethical Technology Initiative and is the host of the podcast Technically Human, where she speaks with major thinkers, writers, and technologists about the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. She has taught and published on a wide variety of issues, including human rights, Holocaust memory, science fiction, ethical technology, and more. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation today, which I hope will spark more discussions about why studying the past matters as we look at the world around us. Hi, Deb. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jason. Thanks so much for hosting me. I'm a huge fan of the show. Thanks. I'm a fan of yours also. (laughs) Your podcast, Technically Human, is like it's really something else. There's a lot to talk about relating to some of the issues that you've been engaging with in that podcast and kind of your work at large. And I think that it might be useful for us to start in kind of the broadest terms. Technically Human is a podcast that's about the intersection between technology, contemporary technological issues and ethics and humanistic issues. But would you like to maybe get us started by you know, sharing a few thoughts about why issues of ethical technology are really important in general and to you specifically, and how like information ethics and the intersection between the humanities and technology you know, is such an important thing when we're looking at history, when we're looking at contemporary issues as well? Maybe the place to start is where most people start with me, which is to ask me, why is a professor of English literature with a background in human rights and Holocaust analogies thinking about the ethics of technology? And what I say typically is that you know, before we have to build anything, before we can build anything, we first have to imagine it. And so we want to interrogate the realm of our imagination. We really want to understand what it is that we imagine. And more precisely, we want to understand what it is that we imagine when we imagine a world that is a better place. One thing that both human rights discourse and technological discourse shares is that both of them seek to create a world as it could or should be, or to build a better world. That's at the heart of technological innovation. How do we, by electrifying rural Texas, create an environment where women are not doing back-breaking work, right? That is a technological impulse. How do we create a better world or a vision of a better world as it has been envisioned by somebody? At the heart of human rights is a radical ideology of a world that could potentially be one in which people do not have harm, one in which we believe that we have inviolate rights endowed by our metaphorical creator, uh, that others cannot trespass into regardless of what the individual state laws are. It's a radically utopian ideology. And at the heart of technological innovation, I want to argue there is that too. Now, we can stay away for the moment for where human rights ended up and where technological innovation currently is as a industry couched in major metropolitan cities such as Silicon Valley. But at the heart of both of these, I want to argue, is a deeply utopian vision. And 
when we're talking about utopian visions, we're talking about a kind of prophetic vision of imagining and building a better world. And so I'm really interested in interrogating the realm of the imagination to think, well, what mythologically do we understand a better world to be? Is a better world one where we have access to all information and eradicate privacy? Is a better world one in which everybody conforms to a certain kind of ideology and the state uh, has control and there's a certain form of uniformity? These are utopian ideals that actually have gone terribly wrong. They have uh, veered into dystopia. When I think about technological innovation, I'm really interested in what kinds of values we want to build toward, what kind of human values we want to embed in our technological products, and how those things enhance and perhaps mobilize or constrict and forbid human values. Yeah, I mean, I'm really struck by your thinking here about the visions of utopia that drive a lot of technological development. I think another way to talk about it might be a sort of messianism this sense of like technology as a savior in some way. And I think that that kind of brings us to some of these issues that you initially mentioned, which is, as you said, like people ask you, you know, why is somebody with, you know, a background in you know, all these different humanistic things thinking so deeply about technology? Uh, and I think on the one hand, like we should all be thinking deeply about technology because it's part of our everyday lives, right? But I, I think that when you talk about utopia, when you talk about messianism, there are really important social and cultural issues that underpin so many of the things that are happening in the sort of the technological sphere that not a lot of people are thinking about or they're unaware of. And I think that part of the story here is that the humanistic approach allows us to see through a lot of what's taking place and see, for instance, as you said, like the way in which technology is, is not something that is purely objective but is sort of imbued with ideology or imbued with history uh, as well. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. One of the things that I talk about when I talk about the ethics of technology is the idea that technological production is never neutral. It's always built in with the biases and the blind spots and the passions of the people who build them. So in my work, I draw a strong relationship between ethics and equity simply because one of the outcomes of having equity built into the process and in the production of technological uh, culture is that you start to see where those blind spots are and you start to see where the biases start to emerge. But the other part of this really is that you know some people want to believe that technological products are themselves neutral. The argument is a hammer is a hammer. It depends on how you use it, right? I want to argue against that. Certainly, there are many different uses to technological products but, you know, people who built the crematoria in the death camps, they were engineers and they were building a technological product. What did they think that they were building? Well, what did they want to maximize for? Well, they wanted to maximize for the ability to burn massive numbers of bodies uh, in a very short period of time. So that technological product had an intention and an aim built into it from the beginning. And so those engineers were either totally oblivious to what they were doing, and historians have countered that fact, or they were trying to maximize for a certain process that was involved in a deeply horrific and gruesome human rights violation. So we want to think about what a product has as its baseline intentions. Now, of course, we cannot anticipate every single outcome of a technological product. We can't think about every potential use, but there are foreseeable, intended, and probable outcomes. We want to 
think about that as much as possible. We want to cover as much ground as possible in terms of possible uh, blind spots. And we really want to be intentional about thinking of how we use and how we create technological products. People sometimes say, well, guns don't kill people, people kill people. But of course, the objective of building a gun is to cause bodily harm. Whatever the intention of who to cause bodily harm to, the aim is to cause bodily harm. So that's not a neutral tool. It has an aim, it has an intention, it has a purpose. Of course, it requires people to mobilize it forward. But to go back to the point, all technological products have purposes built into them. We really want to interrogate what those are. And you know who better to interrogate them than humanists, people who have a deep background in the history of ideas, who have a history and an understanding of ethics, who can think about things like equity and social justice. And so we're trained to do that. I want, of course, and I've built a curriculum around training the next generation of engineers and technologists to think ethically. But I think that there's a really important place here for humanists, just as I wouldn't want to task my orthopedic surgeon for understanding the ethics of biology as a whole, I wanted to be able to fix my knee primarily. Um, I actually want to uh, build humanist expertise into the industry as well. I think there's a real opportunity here uh, to do that. And there's a real space right now in the industry for people who have that kind of training. I actually argue there's a uh, upcoming and emerging profession of ethical technologists that humanists are deeply equipped to and qualified to occupy. This is a podcast about Jewish history and about Jewish studies, right? And, you know, the past few minutes, you've been talking about the way in which kind of the humanities approach to technology and to science can help to inform things, right? You know, so that people are thinking uh, deeply about, about what's going on. But what about Jewish studies? Now, you're a person you know, with a Jewish studies background. What is it about Jewish history and, and Jewish culture that informs some of these questions about ethical technology for you? I mean, there's so many different registers here to talk about. You know, one obvious example is the example of bioethics. Many people think about ethics of technology and they immediately go to digital ethics. But of course, the field of bioethics and medical ethics is premised on the Nazi medical experiments conducted in the camps. So there is a lot of what we think of today as contemporary ethics at the intersection of technology that actually emerged from that moment. There's the example of, you know, thinking about what the engineers building the crematoria thought that they were doing. Certainly, from my perspective, a lot of it has to do with thinking about the kinds of technological products that emerge out of human rights discourse. So, for example, one of the you know, important things to think about with testimony is why did testimony become a primary piece of uh, evidence in the context of the Holocaust? Well, part of it is that testimony is a lot easier to cultivate and a lot easier to retain sometimes than physical evidence. Certainly, the technologies of recording testimony were co-emergent with Holocaust uh, history and the history of testimony itself. We're talking about a moment, you know, in the 1930s, 1940s, where radio broadcasts and then radio transcription and the ability to record and retain audio was at a peak. One of the reasons that I argue that uh, the Holocaust marked a very unique moment in human rights and the kind of discourse of factuality that's pivoted around human rights was that this was a formative moment where imagery and the documentation of atrocity could circulate with relative ease and frequency across borders in a global sense that everybody around the world 
was seeing these images, very graphic images, streaming into oftentimes their living room for, for the first time. And so in that sense, a kind of new factuality around testimony and around the evidence of human rights was anchored. And then, of course, you know, one important way that I think about the intersection of Holocaust history and technology is around the ways in which Holocaust history and Holocaust factuality has actually been channeled into something that is deeply, I think, suprafactual or extrafactual, which is Holocaust metaphoricity. And the ways in which terminology of the Holocaust have been mobilized into human rights projects elsewhere by way of their figurative properties, that is to say, by way of their property as metaphor, analogy, and simile. And one of the things that I'm really interested in is thinking about how our digital environment, our virtual environment, cultivates an arena where actually facts are less significant and are less impactful than metaphorical statements. And because the Holocaust has become such a large metaphor and such a kind of large figure of global imagination, I'm really interested in how that intersects with and uh, recombines in interesting ways and oftentimes, I think, in deeply troubling ways in online media environments and uh, in virtual environments where facts are less potent, less significant than shared circulating metaphors. You just gave us like five hours worth of things to talk about. It might be useful for us to backpedal just for a second, which is to say that I think that part of what you're getting at here is that there are various issues in, in Jewish history and culture at large that obviously relate to ethical and technological questions, right? But that the Holocaust, you know, perhaps above all kind of stands out as a particular, you know, historical era, a particular historical set of events that allows us to kind of plumb and, and think deeply about ethical issues because, of course, the Holocaust, you know, was a tremendously unethical crime, right? Part of what is important about studying the Holocaust and thinking about the Holocaust is the way in which the Holocaust, because of its extreme nature, right, it provides us with a certain kind of tool to, to think with, as it were, about various issues, right? There's a reason why, you know, if we're talking about the late 20th century, when people were debating questions about how you write history, what are the limits of historical representation, that the key issue was the Holocaust. You know, the Holocaust is such an extreme historical event that it allows us to kind of look at the extremes of various issues, right? You know, what is the extreme of technology, right? You know, you talked before about, you know, the scientists and the engineers who built, you know, the gas chambers and the crematoria, or the, the, even the railroad engineers who managed deportations. There are all these different aspects of the Holocaust that cause us to question a lot of different things because of its extreme nature, right? And I think that you mentioned uh, a few of them here that are, are particularly important. And one of them that you got me thinking about was questions about access to information. And so you have talked briefly before about testimonies, right? But we can also talk about it in the time period itself, the, uh, the kind of question of what kinds of information that people have access to. And the decision by the U.S. State Department, for instance, to withhold the information that they had about the events that were taking place uh, in Europe, they knew that the Holocaust was happening and it took quite a long time for the State Department to officially acknowledge this and to share this information with the public. You know, this is part of a series of questions about information and about technology. And I think that there's a lot to think about there in terms of what the actual events of the Holocaust tell us, you know, about the kind of ethical obligations that people have when they're dealing with information of one kind or another. I think the more interesting question, rather than asking what 
the United States government knew or did not know is the question of what information mobilizes us to do. And in the context of the Holocaust, uh, we had all the information we needed and did relatively little. And our engagement with subsequent atrocities has borne out the the fact that uh, information does not necessarily enable action or wisdom. We're right now in a uh, data uh, and knowledge economy in which there's a data deluge. There's an information excess. And in the context of an information excess, we still don't have, I think, the literacy to be able to mobilize that kind of information toward wisdom. In fact, we might say that there's too much information at this point to be able to create a kind of productive literacy. In fact, I think that a lot of information in the excess of information makes it illegible at times. And so the real question I think here is what do we do with information? Not just what information do we have access to, but what do we do with that kind of information and in what name? Now, one reason that I think the Holocaust is very interesting in this context is that the Holocaust really represents a formative moment in international law in which international law comes together and is pivoted around the idea of taking this formative event of Jewish suffering and then mobilizing it in order to prevent subsequent atrocities in the form of the Holocaust, right? You have an event that was considered to be essentially beyond representation. Your listeners might be familiar with Theodore Adorno or other philosophers who have called the Holocaust in some way beyond language, beyond poetry, beyond representation. Now, where does that claim come from? Well, if you look at the history of the Holocaust in both legal and in cultural terms, the witnesses to the Holocaust were oftentimes testifying that the events were indescribable. They were beyond language. They were beyond representation. In fact, in legal terms, this was also considered to be the case. Scholar of comparative law, uh, Raphael Lemkin, looked at the events of the Holocaust and said that these events could not be described in any given term that legal language offered. The word barbarity didn't work. The word atrocity was too minimalistic to describe the uh, excesses of the Holocaust. And so he coined a new legal term, the word genocide. He took the uh, Greek word for tribe, genome, and the Latin word for killing, kydre, and put them together to create this new term, which was supposed to, and this is his term, provide what he called a dictionary for the future. Now, this is really interesting as a construct, because on the one hand, this posits the Holocaust as a formative event without precedent, without terminology, without any likeness or similarity. And at the same time, this unique event was also supposed to be a term of comparison, such that subsequent atrocities could be named and recognized and responded to when they appeared in the form of the Holocaust or when they looked like the Holocaust. So here we have an initial tension built in right at the kind of inception of international law and a human rights discourse and right at the emergence of the terminology of the Holocaust. This is a unique event to describe the specific experience of Jewish suffering on the one hand, and on the other hand, it is a term of analogy a term that uh, can mobilize uh, response and political capital and can turn toward uh, a form of redress. And so you have this kind of tension, and I think that that tension has played itself out over and over and over again in the attempt by subsequent atrocities 
primarily in the global South, to gain recognition and to garner response by shaping themselves or uh, showing how their likeness is in the form of the Holocaust. And of course, the international community's subsequent uh, and continuous unwillingness to address these atrocities because they are not quite like the Holocaust or not the Holocaust yet. And so this mode of comparison, which was ideally mobilized toward preventing human rights violations, has actually, I think, worked to enable them in in some fashions. And this is something that plays out, I think, particularly in our social media environment in really interesting ways, as human rights violations are very quickly termed or given uh, phraseology related to the Holocaust, and oftentimes inappropriately related to the Holocaust, such as gazpacho uh, policies which of course refers to Gestapo policies. Yeah, I mean, if, if I can just jump in here, I think that, that you've identified something really interesting here. So there's this, this intense fundamental tension over questions of Holocaust comparison. And I think it was a couple of years ago where the US Holocaust Memorial Museum and, and other people kind of like, you know, got into this debate about like, to what extent can you make Holocaust comparisons? You know, and I think that, that part of what you're talking about here is that Holocaust comparisons are necessary in order to understand other genocides. There's also this kind of way in which some people are afraid of making those comparisons or who use the act of comparison to highlight the way that things are different and thereby to minimize or otherwise to obscure the atrocities which are taking place you know, even today. You mentioned the social media landscape, right? And you, you mentioned this before as well. The current information ecosystem in many ways is built upon comparisons and metaphors. When we talk about memes, for instance, and other types of communication. Uh, in that mode. And so I think that in order to understand contemporary communication, right, you need to have a deep understanding of this debate about what can be compared and what cannot be compared in the first place. Well, I think you, even before that, have to have a deep understanding if you want some sort of literacy and you want to be able to understand the nature of our uh, digital ecosystem. You have to understand that in a virtual environment, we are all already interacting with one another in a form of kind of hyper-mediated remove. So Jason, for example, I'm looking at you on the screen right now. Or if you send me an email and you have a picture of you, I already make the jump that the picture of you is somehow representative of an actual you. I don't point at the screen and I say, ah, that screen is Jason. I say, ah, no, that thing on the screen that is shaped in the shape of a Jason is a Jason who is not actually living in my screen, but elsewhere. And so a virtual environment we already have the impulse. We already intuitively move from signifier to signified, right? To the sign, to use some terms from semiotics. We already do that kind of work. And so my thought is that virtual environments are already predispositioned toward a kind of metaphoricity or a kind of figuration. But you want to add to that, that in the context of a social media environment, you have people aggregating together in collectives where they actually don't share a physical or spatial context. There's, you know, in a Facebook group, for example, I'm in one place, somebody else is in Australia, somebody else is in Texas, and we're all connecting together without any shared material environment in common. And so in order to translate information across one place to another, I think we become less reliant on material facts and more reliant on metaphorical communities. And one way that metaphors operate is that they allow for, in language, a kind of shared conceptual reality that 
can override differences in our material experiences. That's one thing that metaphors do. And in that context, metaphors translate across communities where there is not a lot of material, empirical, spatial sharing in that kind of concrete, empirical way and allow us to translate ideas across different contexts much more expediently, much more readily. And so when somebody says to me, for example, on Twitter, the camps at the southern border are like concentration camps, or these are concentration camps at the southern border, as Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said in the summer of 2019, referencing the detention camps at the southern border. We already have a shared understanding, because the Holocaust is so writ large in the popular imagination, of number one, what she's talking about in terms of a kind of moral wrong, and number two, the kinds of moral implications of that kind of wrong, the level, the extent, the uh, magnitude of it. And that is something that we can all grasp onto independent of whether or not we've ever been to the southern border, independent of whether or not we know the facts of what's happening at the southern border, independent of whether or not I am in the Northeast or in the Pacific Southwest or in the middle of the country. We can all grasp onto, we can get traction on the uh, situation by referencing the metaphor. I feel like you're saying two different things, right? You know, the first one is about the power of metaphor in general and the power of metaphor over actual facts in and of themselves, right? And then the second thing also is the way in which the Holocaust has become a, a common reference point for people. I think that, that we're living in a, in a moment where you know, there's more and more fracturing culturally, I think is one way to put it. I wouldn't necessarily call it cultural polarization, but uh, it's been a very long time since there were just three TV networks. So like there's a way in which like the media landscape is fractured. So people are not accessing the same information uh, in the same way. And in an even more extreme way, one can talk about the way in which you know, the 21st century social media forms actually create bubbles, right? In terms of how people are accessing completely different information from each other, right? So all I'm just trying to say is that there's an element where you know, there's less of a shared language, perhaps, you know, among people. And I think that part of what you are suggesting here is that the Holocaust is one of the few things that remains of a completely shared language uh, among people that offers a tool of comparison. I'm saying two things, exactly right. The first is that I'm looking at a larger landscape in which factuality has been, in a sense, um, subordinated to a kind of figural way of thinking. And as the ecology of factuality has declined, I think we're seeing a rise of a kind of thinking mobilized by figurative uh, technologies, that is to say, metaphor, analogy, and simile. Now, why that is the case, I think, is deeply tied to our technological environment. But within that ecosystem where figurative strategies have, in a sense, overtaken any kind of factual reality that we either share or that we can convey. I think that the Holocaust as a kind of metaphor on a large scale has become uh, extraordinarily important and extraordinarily potent in that kind of ecosystem. It's kind of like the supra metaphor, you know, that comes from a time when we think of there being a kind of like global consensus about a certain set of facts and a, a sort of global significance, a kind of moral righteousness built into it. And so you'll see in our contemporary representational economy, thinkers going back to the Holocaust again and again to express moral outrage at whatever their political camp thinks is morally outrageous. 
everything from you know, the fact that vaccine mandates or vaccine passports for a certain political group is metaphorically aligned with the carrying of identification cards by Jews in the Holocaust enforced by the Nazis to the point uh, where many of us are currently concerned about Putin's invasion of Ukraine, which for many thinkers about the Holocaust has brought up and is figuratively aligned on a very close analogical level with the invasion of Czechoslovakia by Hitler in 1938. I can talk at great length about why uh, many people are particularly concerned and mobilized by and impressed by this analogy. But I think the more salient point, Jason, for this conversation and the tenor of this conversation is really to you know think about what Holocaust metaphors do, what they allow, what they perhaps prevent or forbid, and what you know metaphoricity largely accounts for in an economy when we are less convinced by and. Uh, where we sometimes can't even agree about the nature of a shared factual reality. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what you're indicating here is the way in which Holocaust comparisons, as it were, don't even necessarily have to reference the Holocaust directly for them to evoke meaning for people. Yeah, absolutely. I give the example sometimes of Toni Morrison's book, Beloved, which he dedicates to the 6D million. Now, the dedication to the 6D million is not an arbitrary number. It's a clear indicator or reference uh, to the 6 million, the number frequently ascribed to account for the number of Jews murdered in the Holocaust. So what Morrison is essentially saying by gesturing toward the 6 million with the term 6D million is you think that this event, this Holocaust was bad, Consider the magnitude of the African-American experience of genocidal conditions under slavery. Another figure that sometimes I cite is the great Jamaican author, Michelle Cliff, who has her character uh, in Jamaica pick up and is a child, The Diary of Anne Frank. And this character in Jamaica, who's living in kind of the aftermath of colonialism, reads Anne Frank's diary. And as she's reading Anne Frank's diary, she starts to imagine Anne Frank. And what she starts to realize is that the entire environment of Jamaica has inherited, in a sense, the smoke of the burning bodies in Europe. And so what the image that Michelle Cliff gives us very neatly is the fact that the Holocaust travels, that this character has slept, eaten, breathed in a very literal sense, the history of the Holocaust. So how could she not think of herself in its terms? I mean, I think like part of what you're talking about here is like a certain kind of Holocaust comparison where people, like, like I said before, don't even have to reference the Holocaust directly for their meaning to be understood. And then there's the kind of the opposite end, I think, which is where things that are specifically about the Holocaust uh, come to me in all sorts of other things, right? And where the the entire kind of idea of the Holocaust is transposed into entirely unrelated topics. Uh, I'm thinking here in particular about the whole phenomenon of the German movie Downfall, Untergang. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with this, Deb, right? You know, the, the clip of, of the actor who plays Adolf Hitler going berserk because they're losing. And, you know, people uh, took the fact that this isn't German, right? And then write subtitles, you know, to say, oh, like, oh, I didn't get my PS5, my PlayStation, right? And so I'm going to, like, have a freak out, you know? And so, like, the whole sort of depiction of the Holocaust then is, like, transformed into something entirely different as well. And I think that there's something really powerful in the way in which the Holocaust is used in these kind of comparative modes 
in uh, contemporary communication in ways that perhaps other subjects are not used as much. Sure. With the Holocaust, you have something that's so overtly dramatic and written in such bold moral terms that the tendency in our contemporary meme culture is to, in a sense, take that kind of melodrama writ large and then superimpose things that are obvious misfits to it, such as uh, Hitler's uh, speech and to Hitler's rant being, in a sense, compared to the anger at not getting a PlayStation, right? So these are comparisons that are overtly being used to the purpose of humor by way of them not being quite similar in obvious ways. And so, you know, I don't have a particular problem with meme culture. I found those memes in Downfall very, very funny, uh, where I think we get into odd and uncomfortable and and deeply morally uh, challenging conversations is around the use of Holocaust comparisons to make claims that are empirically untrue. And so I don't find anything funny about the claim that the Nazi passport stamps for Jews or identification papers for Jews are in any way similar to vaccines. I think that we get into some fairly serious moral territory when, for example, Israeli soldiers are compared to Nazis, as they sometimes are. And so one thing I think it is important to understand about analogies is that analogies can make astute comparisons. They can allow us to enter into and to understand empirically, materially strange environments, but they can also be used oftentimes strategically with the aims of gaining political capital to compare things that are objectively not comparable. And so we want to be really careful with how we employ analogies and what kind of analogies we accept. Something like the the memes that you were describing in downfall are overtly funny and I think ridiculous enough that reasonable people understand that the comparison is not meant in any serious term. But there are inapt comparisons that I see all the time that are meant with all seriousness. And those are the ones that I'm concerned about. Yeah, there's a lot to be said here. And we've moved a little bit away from our initial conversation about ethical technology and the Holocaust. But I think that this is still so deeply related to this question of how people engage with information and how things like the Holocaust can inform our understanding of this. And this I can think of in a couple of different ways, but one of them, which you stressed earlier, is this question of the power of metaphor over fact, right? The way in which you know we are living in an era at the moment where uh, people are uh, sometimes a bit too easily taken in by false information. And the use of metaphor is like one of the rhetorical techniques of pushing narratives of false information. And I think that, that there's a lot to think about here um, in terms of what uh, Holocaust memes, for instance, what they tell us about the phenomenon of fake news. And here I want to be very clear. I'm, I'm talking very specifically about, you know, uh, totally false information, you know, which is uh, disseminated and sometimes uh, taken as fact. And so I think that when you look at the history of the Holocaust, the history of, of the rise of the Nazi party, and more broadly, these issues of contemporary communication, that, that the Holocaust provides us with a, a really powerful lens to thinking about false information, whether we're thinking about the mechanisms of Nazi propaganda and how it was that they developed their, their virulent uh, anti-Semitic ideology and spread it among the population, or whether we're talking about more contemporary times, thinking about how false information uh, is spread and weaponized as well. When I teach my ethics of technology class, um, one of the first things that I teach my students is the use of radio by Goebbels 
to craft a completely false and propagandist narrative about the Jews. And we look at, you know, the use of slogans and vague language and metaphors by Goebbels and by Hitler in order to mobilize certain ways of thinking, in order to circumvent, you know, having to account for the facts. And one of the things we read in that class is Orson Welles' broadcast of Homer G. Wells' War of the Worlds, a broadcast on October 30th, 1938. Now, of course, this is one of the first alien invasion stories written by H.G. Wells and then broadcast by Homer Wells. And when people think about War of the Worlds, what they think about is the panic that many people were said to have experienced of an actual alien invasion, mistaking this radio broadcast dramatic performance for an actual alien invasion. But in fact, if you look at what Orson Welles was doing, what Orson Welles was concerned about was the invasion, not of Martians, but the radio. And he had looked at the technology of the radio, which was at the time considered a new technology by the Nazis. And what he saw were radios invading the private space of of living rooms, of people's houses, and broadcasting things that could not be verified as fact or fiction. And in fact, what Orson Welles proved in Broadcasting War of the Worlds was that this new technological medium uh, was indeed capable of uh, creating a massive panic because of that kind of illiteracy over this new medium's ability to distinguish between factuality and fictionality. So this is a shorthand for saying not much has changed. People like myself are are thinking in, I think, alarmist ways sometimes about the technology uh, of the internet and social media for propagating fictions over falsehoods or what has been called fake news or you know truthiness. And I think where we get to in this contemporary media environment is a real decline over a kind of shared consensual factual reality. In fact, one of the things that I think we see is an increasing belief that if something is true enough, it's the same thing as being true. So I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. And this is not my example. This is Nancy Rosenblum's example in her excellent work on uh, the Trump administration and the decline of factuality. She says, you know, the claim that Hillary Clinton was operating a pornography ring in a pizza parlor was so ludicrous that it was very hard to believe. Did people actually believe that Hillary Clinton was operating a pizza parlor slash pornography ring? Probably not. But the thought process was not, is this true, but rather, is this true enough? Meaning, not is this empirically true, but rather is Hillary Clinton the kind of person that I dislike so severely that I could believe anything radical about her? And the answer to that was for many people, or at least some people, yes. And so there's a difference I think we need to to make and keep distinct between something being true, factually, reliably true, and something being true enough. And I think increasingly, many of us in this current factual environment have been pushed, uh, oftentimes, I think, as a result of our digital technologies, to think of true enough as the same thing as true. And that distinction, I think, has oftentimes collapsed by metaphors, which do the work of getting us to believe something as true uh, enough. That is what analogies essentially do. They give us a figurative equation whereby the property of one thing in the figurative equation is translated into the property of the other thing in the equation. And so we start to see principles uh, arise out of the equation that we might not have otherwise seen. In fact, there's a transfer of principles between the 
the uh, objects in that kind of equation. And so things become true enough. And I hope that we can start to build literacy around the distinction. Yeah, what you're pointing us to uh, is like kind of two things. The first one is that these issues about quote unquote fake news are not particularly new. The various generations of new media technologies have all kind of like lended themselves towards the possibility to spread false information on the one hand, uh, but also the way in which we're living in a particular kind of era of information where uh, people, I, I would not say people are more gullible because that's not true, right? I think that, that where people are more susceptible, perhaps in, in varying parts of the, of the political spectrum, this is not just a story of conservatives versus liberals or something like that, but where we live in an environment where false information proliferates. So part of the story here as it relates to the Holocaust is about, you know, how do issues of the Holocaust play into how we approach questions of fake news and kind of what I would call algorithms of extremism as they develop through, for instance, recommendation algorithms for videos on YouTube and things like that, you know, where there's a lot of really bad information. And by bad, I just mean things that are misleading or things that are, uh, that are false that relates to the Holocaust, just like there are about so many other issues, but where uh, you know, these things can be so easily found online. You know, I'm struck by, for instance, the way in which the Internet Archive uh, is basically used by uh, extremist groups to, uh, to host various videos and other things. You know, if you go poking around the Internet Archive, you'll find a lot of this uh, kind of really horrific stuff. And I think that there's a lot to be said here about how looking at the history of the Holocaust and also questions about Holocaust denial or Holocaust misinformation, how that can play a part in a kind of a necessary conversation about the way in which the internet is actually a tool of misinformation a lot of the time, as opposed to a tool of information. Certainly to your last point, I'm pretty adamant that access to more information does not make us any wiser. Uh, I think that literacy makes us wiser. And I think that we have yet to cultivate a form of literacy or to be able to teach people how to become literate in reading in this new technological environment. And so here I see a tremendous role of the humanities bringing in the history of ideas and bringing in the history uh, and a cautionary tale of what happens when we do not have literacy in our media environments or how people can manipulate our media environments in order to get us to move our behavior in ways that we would not otherwise consent to having our behavior moved. And certainly people like Tim Wu and you know others are doing really good work in demonstrating the efficacy of false information and the uh, manipulation of media as used to catastrophic events, for example, with the Holocaust. But I think the larger point to be made here is about you know, the fact that any new media environment will create a kind of new need for literacy and moments of uncertainty about, you know, the utility and the kind of agility we have around the form. I do think that there is something very specific to our new media environment. And I am not making this point for the first time. The great media critic Neil Postman made this point to perfection, I think, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And one of the things he points to is the move away from a writing culture, a culture of a culture largely concentrated on the written word to a culture largely mobilized by a visual 
kind of um, stimulation and a visual environment, which I think is where we find ourselves now. And the movement away from the written word, and I don't count texts as part of the written word. John McWhorter, I think, makes a good distinction in that as well. So I'll reference him and tell you to go read John McWhorter's pieces on on language and language use. Um, But I think the move away from the written word allows a kind of slip in precision. And I think it mobilizes the entertainment value of a claim over the truth value of a claim. And that the environment that we're in right now um, has deeply, I think, moved us away from evaluating the value of a claim based on whether it's true or not to something more like whether it is entertaining or not. And I think that that movement is pretty catastrophic. If the value of information is not whether it is true, but rather uh, whether it is entertaining, then there's no, there's no incentive to tell the truth. There's no incentive to present the truer account and every incentive to present the most sensationalistic, bombastic, and, uh, and spectacular account. And I don't know that that's an environment that actually is good for us. Yeah, we've gotten through like a lot of things in our conversation. And there's quite a lot more to talk about here, you know, with regards to questions about ethical technology and history and culture. Um, But there's one final thing that I kind of want to ask you about, you know, which is the uh, developing technology of deep fakes, right? And sort of the possibility to construct images that are completely falsified, right? Uh, And videos which are completely falsified. You know, I was wondering if you can uh, put on your technologist hat here a little bit and think about, you know, what is it that the Holocaust has to teach us about the possibility to create these kinds of things, which of course were like, on the one hand, you know, deep fakes, I think are something that people could never have even imagined in the 1930s, right? But they also were in the process of falsifying information, right? So what do what the events of, of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust have to teach us about the sort of this developing technological capability? And also, you know, what does this issue have to do with broader issues of misinformation as it potentially relates to Holocaust denial, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah, you're right. It is a really big issue. And I'm glad you asked the question because actually deep fakes uh, was one of the major uh, movements in technological culture that got me starting to think about the need for a kind of ethical encounter with technological culture. The moment was around 2016 when I think many of us who had previously been, in a sense, enraptured by technological culture, if you recall, under, under the Obama administration, tech leaders were considered to be you know, major thought leaders in the environment. Obama was an uh, incredible ambassador to Silicon Valley. And at a certain point, I think he had thought to go into uh, technological culture himself in that period. And then in about 2016, many of us were alarmed uh, by the election of Donald Trump, and we were turned uh, toward thinking about the ways in which Facebook and Cambridge Analytica's use of Facebook had led to the election outcome. And of course, at the same time, we were very concerned about this larger ecology of data privacy, data collection, and the ways in which technological products were manipulating our factual reality. Deep fakes was certainly one of the things that I think started alarming people at that point. If you want to talk about deep fakes, we can talk about deep fakes in the larger economy of misinformation in the digital space. But another way to think about deep fakes is as part of an economy of what I call denialism. It includes the denial of climate reality, climate destruction, and of course, the Holocaust uh, and Holocaust denial as well. 
And so we can think about, well, what, what is denialism really about? And on a certain level, denialism and the kind of psychology of denialism is related to the idea that there's a kind of observable reality out there, a kind of consensual reality, a factual reality that most people take for granted, and that certain people think of themselves as not wanting to be fooled by a kind of elitism. And so they think of themselves as like extra elite, and they are able to see beyond what the elite has presented to them. Now, this is part of a larger problem in the way that we think about factuality right now, which is that facts themselves are not, by many people who ascribe to this kind of philosophy, seen as windows into the truth, but rather walls to the truth. Not windows into the truth, which is how we typically think of facts, but rather things that prevent us from knowing the true facts, right? This is a kind of conspiratorial thinking. And what denialists are, I think, playing upon is the idea that there is this external reality that only they, as an elite group, have access to and are capable to reveal the ways in which structures of power limit the public's access to the true facts. And they, as elites, can actually provide a new uh, way of thinking and seeing things that cuts through these systems of power. Deep fakes belong to that philosophy in the sense of attempting to leverage this kind of denialist thinking to inject their own kind of manipulative behavior and manipulative ends. And so deep fakes, uh, I think, work toward the end of this kind of denialism, which already takes for granted the idea that we cannot understand a factual reality as a kind of window to the truth. What this kind of denialism imposes is, is a way of rejecting that kind of factual reality. It's suspicious of a kind of factual reality and a factual consensus. And so deep fakes play into the creation and cultivation of that kind of suspicion. Part of what you're suggesting here, which is really, really fascinating, is the way in which, like, on the one hand, you talk about a, a culture of denialism. You didn't even mention COVID denialism, right? But that we can perhaps trace this idea of denialism, you know, much, much further back, you know, where Holocaust denialism, right, is part of this ecosystem as well, you know, of people who would make the claim, the, the obviously incorrect claim, that somehow uh, all the evidence of the Holocaust was a fake or falsified. And, uh, and I think that, that part of what's going on here is, I think, two different things. Like, on the one hand, you're talking about the way in which, like, the possibility of, of deep fakes contributes to this kind of sense of denialism. Right. But the other half of it, which is, you know, in, in certain ways terrifying, is that like I think one of the things that we want to inculcate in our students is a critical perspective on the sources and to kind of like take everything that they see with a grain of salt to kind of look at things critically, especially as the possibility of, of deep fakes con like continues to proliferate, you know, as the technology improves, becomes more accessible, etc. It raises a problem, right? Which is like, you know, to what extent does that provide people with an out, as it were, you know, to say, you know, this thing or that thing, which is actual historical evidence to claim that it was somehow falsified because people are more aware of the possibility that anything can be falsified, right? So deep fakes are like, on the one hand, it's very scary from a misinformation point of view because we can see how they could be used to spread misinformation, right? But deep fakes also have the possibility, again, I think it's kind of scary. I'm a little bit afraid to even talk about it out loud 
right? Because it, you know, then it might actually happen. But you know, deep fakes have the possibility that as people become more aware that we need to be questioning everything that we see because it's possibly a fake, right? Means that they will begin to question actual reality things as well. Right. I think that that's exactly right. And yes, I think that that's one thing to be uh, very concerned about. But I wanted to just remark on something else that I would be remiss in not uh, remarking on, which is that you know I grouped uh, Holocaust denial in with climate denial, and you helpfully brought in COVID denial as well. But I do think that there is a really specific dimension that I want to highlight because I think that it would be unfortunate and misleading to not mention it as well, which is that in addition to the way that Holocaust denialism intersects with the kind of motivations and outcomes that I uh, have been talking about, the kind of environment that I've been talking about, it's important to mention that there is a deeply anti-Jewish dimension to Holocaust denialism. And I say this and I highlight it and I use the word anti-Jewish rather than anti-Semitic because Semitism refers to the language. And of course, uh, Jewishness extends beyond language, beyond national borders, beyond ethnic boundaries. One of the deeply important things to understand about Holocaust denialism is that that structure of power that I was talking about, the idea of Holocaust denialism or denialism broadly countering, in a sense, the view that the elites have been conspiratorially creating a false reality and the denialists can see through that power structure, is that anti-Jewishness is itself a theory about power, right? It's a theory that posits Jews as somehow a global conspiracy that has pulled the wool over or is continuing to manipulate actors in the world on a global scale. And it is the idea that this elite group of what are sometimes called globalists or actors around the world are conspiratorially maintaining power in a manipulative way. And so Holocaust denialism insofar is that it is already a kind of conspiratorial thinking implicates Jews as having, in a sense, uh, pulled the wool over our eyes with this destruction in order to manipulate world behavior. So I wanted to just make sure that I said that, that while I think that Holocaust denialism fits into this broader construct of denialism, there is this very specific dimension uh, that's important to it. What you're talking about in terms of deep fakes contributing to and mobilizing a kind of environment in which we cannot believe in the validity of any facts is deeply postmodern. And this is a kind of postmodern thinking for those who are unfamiliar with the term. Postmodernism is a term to describe a kind of aesthetic and epistemological movement where factuality is itself questioned, where structures of power are uh, made visible as kind of manipulating the form and the validity of a given um, and supposed reality is, I think, a wonderful aesthetic movement. I love reading postmodern novels. I think it's a kind of terrible ethic to ascribe to. And I think it's a terrible ethic because it really doesn't posit that there is a kind of gravity to meaning that facts actually have a kind of reality in and above of any way in which those facts are mobilized into the service of a claim, which may or may not have to do with power. And I think it brings us into a kind of relativistic world where there is no kind of either conceptual moral reality or a factual material reality. And that isn't a world that I want to live in. I would prefer to live in a world where we believe that there are better or worse answers to uh, moral questions and in which we believe that there are uh, factually real truths to our material world that we actually have to acknowledge if we want to move around in it. Right. You know, without diving into the, the, the questions of postmodernism, 
you know, which I think are important ones to think about, but we just don't have the time for at the moment. As we start to wrap up this conversation, you know, I kind of want to go back to the beginning in a way. You know, we've talked about a whole range of issues as it relates to the Holocaust, as it relates to information, as it relates to technology. And clearly issues about ethical technology and about information are super important when we're thinking about our contemporary lives, the information economy, the technological world in which we live, right? But the question is, right, why is it that Jewish history and culture and the Holocaust, and why is it that this is an important lens for us to use in terms of understanding these much bigger issues in a sense? Yeah, I can talk about two separate issues, which is that oftentimes if we're talking about the great event that I think many people think about as defining Jewish history in the 20th century, which is the Holocaust, many people have, in addition to calling the events of the Holocaust indescribable or unthinkable, have couched the representation of the Holocaust in terms of science fiction. It seems to many people to be the kind of subject matter that we read about in science fiction, everything from ghastly medical experiments to uh, the kind of horrific and awesome, not great awesome, but awesome as in the kind of terrifying, awe-inspiring reaction um, to a kind of modernization gone wrong, as it is oftentimes called, this kind of technological modernization and progress driven to horrific ends. And so I think that when we think about the ethics of the Holocaust, or at least when I think about the ethics of the Holocaust, it really is wrapped up into the kinds of thinking that we have as technology is defining the modern era and as a sign of progress. Many people, and again, this is one of the things that mobilized postmodernism, came at the second half of the 20th century with a deep mistrust in ideas of progress and a deep mistrust of technological products as a signifier and as one of the mobilizing products of our modern culture. And so when I think about the ethics of the Holocaust, I think about the fact that some of our worst fears about what technological products can enable and what technological and products and technological culture as a signifier of modernization can accomplish uh, were realized in that. I also think that it's important to recall that in the context of testimony and in the context of thinking about you know, what the Shoah Foundation as an exemplar writ large of you know, testimony uh, has done is to collect all forms of uh, evidence on an oral basis, which is something that in previous genocides would never have been possible. In a sense, our memory of the Holocaust and the way that it is inscribed in our culture writ large is only possible through our kind of technological innovations and are contingent upon those developments of technological products that have mobilized this kind of memory culture. When we think about memory culture writ large, I think uh, oftentimes people you know, think about memory culture as enduring and kind of uh, across time. But I think that our memory culture is itself contingent upon our technologies. You know, And I use the word technologies to talk about the Shoah Foundation's ability now to you know, use crypto <laughs> technologies to uh, keep the testimony safe and the possibility that they may soon be writing these testimonies on DNA, which actually has a forensic capacity and an, a durability beyond many of our current um, technological forms of inscription. But I also go back to the idea that you know many of our most important memories of the Holocaust are transferred through writing. And writing is itself a technology. It's a very important technology. And I think about what writing is and why those who survived the Holocaust felt such an important importance to write what they experienced. 
And if we look at what the pen does, if we look at what writing is, writing is the attempt to retain memory. It is the attempt to recall or invoke memories, but it is also a signature that says, I was there. What could be more authoritative and documentarian than the idea that I was there? So the pen as a kind of technology has been incredibly important in keeping Holocaust memories alive. Our current epistemology of documentary authority has to do with visual culture and our ability to not only read, but also to see. To see is to believe, right? That's what we say. To see is to believe. And I think many people think about their memories of the Holocaust based on things that they have seen, some of which are factual, documentary, and some of which are fictional. Many people have primitive memories of the Holocaust that are engineered through the pieces of fictions and figures that they have read and that they have watched. I think that many people think about the truth of the Holocaust in the terms ascribed by Steven Spielberg's famous film Schindler's List. And oftentimes those fictions actually become truer to a kind of memory culture than the facts themselves. And so when we Talking about Holocaust memory, we're talking about the technologies used to inscribe it, I think, first and foremost, and how those technologies have both mobilized or uh, at times, I think, uh, transformed the reality of what we remember and what we know. I wanted to just say that like, people sometimes think that uh, somebody working at the ethics of technology in a very critical mode, that I might hate technology or that I find fault in technologists. And and while um, I want our technologies to do better, I come at this because I really love technological culture. One of the things that I've been thinking about recently is the way that coming from a human rights background, a lot of what we think of as two separate histories, the history of human rights on the one hand and the history of technological culture on the other hand, are separate histories. But if you look at them, they're actually deeply intertwined by that vision of making a world a better place or this kind of utopian orientation or vision. And you look at some of the great human rights activists of our time and of previous times. And what you realize is that oftentimes these same people are brilliant and incredibly impactful technologists from Thomas Jefferson to Benjamin Franklin to George Washington Carver to Albert Einstein to Al Gore. These people are deeply thoughtful about technology and they're deeply thoughtful about human rights. And I think that the reason for that is that at its core, technological production has this vision of a utopian or better world, as does human rights. And I think that I come back to over and over again, the idea that we want to really understand what we mean by that term, a better world. We want to understand and draw from the past the caution from the kinds of moral visions that uh, engineered and mobilized deeply dystopian things. Whatever you want to say about Hitler's vision of Nazism, it was a utopian ideal. It was a vision of what he thought was a better world, a world without Jews or homosexuals or political dissidents. Stalin's communism, a vicious form of oppressive uh, ideology, was a utopian vision. And so I think that at the heart of our technological culture and at the heart of our human rights culture is the possibility of this kind of better world and is the kind of spirit of building a better world. I just want us to get really clear on what we mean by a better world and whether or not that vision of a better world is really aligned with human values. I think that the part of what you're trying to say here is that we look back and we understand, right, that Hitler's vision you know, was a dystopia, right? We understand that communism under Stalin was horrific, right? But to them, they believed that they were making a better world. And th that's how they mobilized scientists and engineers 
and you know regular people as well to help them to construct the world that they wanted to create. And I think that part of what you're indicating here is that that our understanding of history and our understanding that people in the past created horrible things in the name of a quote unquote better world might cause us to pause for a moment and think, what are we creating in the name of a better world in our own age? Absolutely. And my hope is that one reason that Jewish history matters and one reason that history matters is that it tells us what people have done, the terrible things that people have done in the name of a utopian vision. And I think it gives us the lessons and perhaps the caution to really think and get real clear about what we mean by a better world, to learn from history, to learn from the past, to learn uh, the lessons of the past, and uh, hopefully learn them in the service of life and the service of living and building a, a better world in light of what we know. All right. Well, thank you so much, Deb. I mean, like I said, I feel like we could go on with this for much, much longer, but we really are out of time. But this has been, I think, a really enlightening and really interesting conversation. So thanks so much for taking some time to chat today, you know, about all these really important issues. And I really look forward to continuing this conversation, which I think is just so important. So thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Jason. I always enjoy talking to you. I'm really glad we had a chance to record it this time. And thanks to you for listening to this conversation with Deb Donig. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.